RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Here's a question for you. Do you know what money is? Do you actually know what money is? That's a very good question, and I think uh, most of us assume that we do. But do we really? And we're going to sort of drill into that a bit. Someone who has a background in banking and finance, Farzan Irani, joins us now to discuss this, to talk money. Welcome to RCR, Farzan. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me, Paul. It's a pleasure. Now, you, this is not the first time that you've sort of talked in this way. This is what you do, and you've been on webinars and, and other uh, appearances talking about money um, previously, and some of our audience will know your name because of, of those uh, previous sessions. What did you find out when you did those, you know, the feedback you got? Do people know what money is, actually? Unfortunately, Paul, um, the answer is no. And um, the system is designed exactly that way for us not to know what money is and not to understand how money works. They make it sound all complicated. Myself, having a 20-year career in banking, it's taken me a while, um, to be more precise, the last six or seven years to have a bit of a deep dive and understand where money comes from, how it is created, who creates the money, and why is the system designed the way it is? Um, if you think about schooling, our schooling doesn't teach us nothing about money. I've always so, wondered about that, and plenty of people have, have said, you know, over the years, uh, we should be educating at school level uh, on money and, and personal finances, but it never happens. And, and, and the system's designed that way on purpose. They, they teach you about different things, so you can go out and earn money, but they don't teach you anything about money, where it comes from or how to spend it or how to be wise with money. And that's the most important aspect in today's world. Most of mo most people's stresses come or are derived from monetary issues. Or financial yeah, I think you're issues. right on that one. I think you're right yeah. on that one. Yeah. Yes, of course. And all of us wake up every morning, go out, do a job nine to five just to earn money so we can pay bills and keep a roof over our head. So wouldn't it be nice if people actually understood money? And if we have to work for it, where does it come from? Yeah, how's it created? Well, we could be talking about um, finance and money a lot more because, folks, this is our first chat with Farzan, but uh, we're looking to do a money feature, and uh, that will be coming to this uh, program soon. So this is like an on-ramp, Farzan. This is, uh, we're onboarding you is what we're doing right now. <laughs> yes, yes, we, we, we're trying to see where this leads, right? Hopefully people want to understand exactly how the system works, uh, so they can at least benefit from it and understand um, the situation a little bit better. Because we've seen over the last two or three years, uh, a lot of people were asleep at the wheel uh, in their own personal lives. And um, some of them are waking up slowly but surely. And hopefully people can understand money and how it works. Um, yeah. They can, yeah. yeah. That's an interesting point that waking up, because what the, the time period you're talking about, I think, is forced people to do is not just wake up to one thing, but to wake up to everything. Yes, of course. They're all interrelated, right? If you start thinking about things and hopefully when we get through the money aspect, people will understand how money was created. It's it's kind of a debt slavery. 
uh, again, I don't want to give too much away, but money was created exactly for that reason. Um, because the only thing we all have, if you think about it, just, just going back to the basics is from the day we were born till the day we die, we all have the same amount of time. Whether you're Jeff Bezos, a millionaire, billionaire, or if you're an average person in Auckland, uh, or anywhere around the world, you all have 24 hours a day. So money was created to steal your time. <laughs> That's and, a great way of putting it. Well, exactly, right? You you are. What, what are you doing when you're going for a job? You're trading 40 hours of your week or 50 hours of your week or of your life, essentially, for what they call money or fiat currency. And then you exchange it for something else, whether it's food or housing and all that kind of stuff. But who creates it uh, and why? That that should be the interesting question most people should be asking. So careers are created, career paths are what uh, is important to people, but, but really it's just the, uh, the the way you're enslaved in debt. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And all money, most money is debt. Um, okay. Where do you want to start uh, with what is money? Um, How is it created? What point do you want to start here? Um, it would be interesting, but let's say, for example, most of us, let's say I'm, I'm 44 years old right now. So I know what I know for the last 44 years, but some of us, our understanding of money comes from what our parents told us and what their parents told them. But if you go back a few, few hundred years, we get a better understanding or when we were hunters and gatherers, or we grew, um, rice and let's say you, uh, had sheep. Um, we exchanged it. There was a barter system that used to exist back in the days because there was no money, there was no currency. Um, so we exchanged one thing for the other. Uh, and unfortunately, if you had a big cow, you wouldn't give me the whole cow just for a bag of uh, potatoes. So barter is essentially how it started. And if you think about barter, just something that I need and you have and something that you need and I have. But we have to agree on a medium of exchange. And that's part essentially. And then it slowly transitioned over the next few hundred years. Some people dealing in silk cloths, some people dealing in feathers. Uh, in African nations, it was beads. Um, and eventually, when the kings uh, started conquering different uh, domains or uh, faraway lands, it was decided to mint coins. And the funny thing is it's the currency or the medium of exchange or money, what we call, never came from the government in the first instance. It was just two businessmen, as we, as I just explained, de deciding on what would be the medium of exchange amongst themselves. And at some stage, it became gold and silver coins. And then at some stage, the government's gone in and said, ah, okay, so if we stamp this gold coin, with our emblem, we can dictate what money is. And that's how that came about. Uh, without going into too much details of uh, stock to flow ratios and why gold and silver, um, because it had monetary value in the sense people could carry it in their pocket, but it was also rare. So, so, so rare, rare imbues a value, right? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you just want to go back to the basic definition of money, it essentially uh, has a few main functions, right? Three main functions, let's say, for account. It's a medium of exchange is what I've just explained. It's a unit of account. So you buy something for $10 or $15, that's your unit of account and a store of value. Now, we'll get towards, hopefully, as this... Uh, radio conversation gets on, we'll understand how governments 
reduce that store of value because we were taught as kids to save money and store it. But because the government creates more and more of it, we're getting away, we're losing value, which is them again stealing our time. So I'll come back to the medium of exchange and the unit of accounts. It was gold and silver. And then governments created pieces of paper because you were supposed to put your gold and silver in bank accounts. You didn't want to carry all the gold and silver with you in your pocket everywhere because you could get robbed or it was time to get a bit too heavy. So the whole point was deposited in banks and they give you a piece of paper saying you had deposited these many coins. And that's how currency essentially started. Uh, yeah. But then okay. I could walk into a bank and take my coins back. Yeah. Okay. I'll and stop that, there if you have any questions for me, Paul. And that piece of paper just represented that you actually had some physical stuff somewhere that you could always retrieve directly. Exactly. And that's how banking came about as well. So when was that? When did, where, Where's the line on that? You know, you, you said hundreds of years ago. And, yeah. and I know coins have been around since the Roman times at least. Uh, did they have banks? Not in the Roman times, no. Um, they had gold merchants and stuff like that. Um, so if you think about the Spanish empires and all that kind of stuff, it was just your gold merchants uh, or the goldsmiths. And essentially, you left uh, your gold with them and yeah. you got a promissory note. That's what it is, essentially. What is a government bond or something? It's a promissory note that somebody else will pay you in the future. So they gave you these pieces of paper, the goldsmiths did. You jumped on a ship. You went to Spain or wherever you bought your, or you went to India and bought your spices. Essentially, they conquered those countries, so they invaded yeah. them. They didn't pay for anything. No. But that was the whole logic of it. And then let's say if I was another trader, I could bring that promissory note to that goldsmith and collect the gold. So if you gave me the promissory note. Now I could go and then collect those notes. So I knew there was money outstanding there or gold coins waiting there for me. That's how banking was initiated in the 1700s. 1800s as well so those uh, <clears throat> excuse me those old traders um let's say they weren't conquering the countries and they were actually going and they were actually paying for it they were paying though in in the solid stuff i would imagine in the you know with the the gold and the silver because uh, no no point turning up with a note means nothing to the locals right yes exactly exactly but imagine i'm a trader jumping on a ship with 20 gold coins in my pocket i could be robbed uh, and it was also too heavy back in those days to carry it. So instead of me carrying 20 coins, I would deposit it with the goldsmith in my country. Or let's say I'm just going to the next town to buy some sheep or cattle or whatever. And I just hand over the promissory note to that person that the goldsmith has 10 coins or one coin at a time, whatever that uh, amount was. But it was just a piece of paper rather than me carrying around gold coins. And that's how banking started from these goldsmiths. Well, you can see um, what the driver for that was, because when you talked about barter, it's really hard to get equivalent value, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And absolutely. And that is why, why do you buy eggs for $12 a dozen nowadays with inflation? 15. Whereas, 15. Yeah, it's getting, it's getting so expensive, isn't it? Uh, it's shocking. And, and and hopefully down the track, we'll go into inflation. So people don't understand what is really going on in the economy. The Reserve Bank tells you we're increasing interest rates because there's inflation, which is contradictory to what it should do. And this is why I want to do this on the radio, because people need to understand these basic things, where they're being lied to. And if they understand 
what is really happening under the surface, they can protect themselves and their families better. Yeah. Okay. So we've got promissory notes, which is the proto form of actual currency. Yes. Okay. So that's unleashed. People are getting used to that. Let's carry on the uh, carry on on the timeline, the chronological timeline here. Yeah. So how did this come about? So the goldsmiths then thought. So let's say, for example, I did. You you gave me your promissory note that the goldsmith was holding onto ten coins. Now, I obviously don't need the 10 coins because I need to carry on with my business. So I go buy something else and I pass on that promissory note to somebody else. And it goes on and on in circles because that's what merchants are doing. This is when the goldsmiths realized, hey, no one's actually coming to claim the gold back. Or even if they did, out of every 20 promissory notes out there, there's only two people coming to collect. Okay, so they're not, no one's making a run on all of them at the same time. But you don't have to at the same time, right? And this is what is today's banking system. It's called fractional reserve banking. It's a fraction. So the goldsmiths thought, hey, because they're charging a fee, remember, they're charging you a fee for holding the gold, right? Because it's a storage facility and they're promising whoever turns up with the promissory note will get the gold coin. So they're giving you a service and it's like a vault. So they're charging a certain fee, and then they suddenly realized is, hey, wait a minute, not many people come to actually claim the actual gold because this promissory note is circulating in the economy, all right? And that's when they started creating more promissory notes without the gold backing there because they're charging a fee, and this is how banking comes about. And then you can charge a fee to everyone even though you're not having to cough up anything at the time. Absolutely, and you don't even have the gold. You don't have the amount of gold you claim you have because there's so many promissory notes circulating in the economy. Yeah. Wow. Well, actually, when you put it like that, it's so simple. Well, I, I on my website, I clearly say that, right? Money has been complicated for purpose, purposefully because they don't want people to understand how it works. Once people understand it, they go, ah, it is so simple, but because people's emotions are mixed in with the monetary side of things, it gets complicated. And the industry loves telling you, hey, listen, financial side of things is really complicated. So let us do it for you. We'll charge you a fee for it. Let us manage it all for you. We charge you a fee for it. So there's Le- industry interest in this, right? I'm thinking of the word leeches. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Wait till we go deeper. If you understand, if you understand the banking system, mate, and I've been part of it. And as I said, quite a few years back, I walked away and I just thought, this is not part of my future destiny where I want to keep doing this. But uh, even when I worked in banking, I'll be honest, not everyone in banking exactly knows how the system works. I've worked at commercial and corporate levels. And I can tell you there would be people who would be two levels above me or three levels above me. And they still don't know how the money is created or where it comes out of. It's only the top, top tier who actually understands how all of this works. And that's why the amount of research. And then when you go back and look at it, you're like, oh, it's that simple. Yeah. It's that simple. It is. Yeah. From just you laying that out as you did. I get it. Now, and now what's happening that's falling into place for me, I can see the motivations now that um, that we are behind where we've got to today because what and I might be jumping the gun here a bit but what the incentive for that is to is to uh, endlessly create 
more promissory notes and contained the uh, the quantity of people wanting to redeem the actual physical stuff all the time. And what, as you can contain that, the more you can create out of nothing, right? Absolutely. That is cool. the word, right? Creating out of nothing. So again, without going off on to a different tangent so people can stay with us, there's your fiat money, which is your fiat currency, which is the paper notes that we have circulating in an economy. And that is only about 10, 15, 20%. The real money that's circulating in the economy is credit money, which the banks get to create. And this is where everything will then connect for people when you understand the goldsmiths is handing out promissory notes. Why do you and I, Paul, don't get a banking license? Okay. Why can't we create Paul Brennan notes? Yeah. Why I don't can, know. Yeah, yeah, because only certain institutions are given a banking license. What a banking license essentially is that they can create money out of thin air. So the government, firstly, by issuing debt, can create money out of thin air. But that's only a small portion of it because the Reserve Bank of New Zealand or Australia or the Federal Reserve in America are the only institutions who can create the legal tender. But the banks can create credit money, which is only 10%. They only need to hold on to 10%. Like we, like we talked about our goldsmiths, banks are allowed to hold only on to 10% and they can create the extra 90% out of thin air and charge you and I interest when they give us a home loan for money they didn't even have, but you get to pay interest on it. So that's a debt slavery treadmill that I'm talking about, right? At least if I give you money and I say, Paul, here's a thousand bucks, can you give me 5% interest? So in a year's time, can you give me 1,050 um, back? That's an agreement between us because I gave you a thousand bucks. But banks, when they give the money, the money doesn't exist. It's created out of thin air. Wow. Okay. And then I suppose if, by lending it for a house, let's say, they convert that out of thin air money into something solid that they can come and claim in the event of you not paying back the money that never existed in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. You get it now, right? All yeah. money in our system, the world we live in right now, money is debt and debt is money. If everybody paid off their debt tomorrow in the world, there would be no money left. And the system, money is created out of debt issuance. That's our monetary system, the world we live in today. Why am I worried about that? Why do I have a sense of that could fall over at any time in my gut right now? Well, we're starting to see signs of it already. Um, we see when interest rates go up, uh, house prices come down, uh, people stop uh, borrowing as much, they can't pay it back. Um, things could collapse. We've seen a few banks collapse in America. Yeah, I was um, thinking of that, yeah. Three or four of those, Credit Suisse, one of the oldest uh, Swiss banks, has also uh, collapsed and the government had to step in. Last year, we saw a pension fund crisis in um, the UK. So all of these things are connected and people just understood what's coming. And this, again, has to do with your Agenda 2030, World Economic Forum, all of that. Everything's connected. But they have to say, oh, we didn't see this coming, just like the Federal Reserve in the US did not see the inflation when it was hitting us in the face for about a good four to five months where everyone could see it. And they said, oh, no, it's transitory this time. Um, and now they're increasing interest rates. So is the Reserve Bank. And it's not helping families, is it? 
No. Well, I was reading of someone the other day in the paper who was paying short of 450 a week now through those interest rate rises, which just means the people who created it out of nothing, something that doesn't physically exist, they're making more from. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 what is in what is the interest rate, Paul? Interest rate is pretty much the price of money. Yeah. Or debt. So if the bank gives you debt to buy a house, again, I I I think we've kind of gone off topic, but I'll just flow with it because what is debt? Debt is something, let's say, for example, you and I want to buy a car right now. I decide to save the money for the next year, and then I go and pay cash for it. Yeah. Whereas you go, I need it now. So you go to a bank or someone else and take a loan because it's future consumption that has been moved into the present, but you're paying an interest rate on it. So people who are buying houses now are buying it and paying it off over the next 30 years, where someone like me or having been raised in India, the mentality is you work hard, save for 10 years, and then just go and pay it outright, buy it outright. But your interest rate is your cost of capital or cost of debt to consume something today and instead of delaying gratification, if that makes sense. So through the money system, we're like preloading our lives all the time. Nothing's Absolutely. Actually, nothing's happening in the now that, you know, um, with, with the resources that we actually have now. It's all hitching it up on the future. Exactly right. And, exactly and hoping right. for the best. <laughs> Hoping for the best and without, again, going into too much detail, I can tell you the whole aim of all of this is for all governments to default on their debt. Am the I beginning to far? Yes. I can tell you now, by 2026, you will see governments, all governments around the world default on their debts. Wow. So all the, and you saw this, as I mentioned, I gave a slight preview was, um, we saw what happened to the pension crisis in the UK last year. Uh, even the banking collapse, what's happening in America, most people think it's a banking collapse. It's not that. It's a treasury debt issuance collapse. So most banks are forced or legislated into buying, uh, holding government bonds on their balance sheet. And when the Reserve Bank increases interest rates, the bonds f fall in value. When they fall in value, the bank goes bust. Right. That is essentially it. But I think we're now getting too deep into the thing. I, I, I that no, is the conversation. It's just so interesting. So, okay, let's reset back to where we were. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly the point where we were at. The, the banking system and the legal tender and how, yeah, the how legal we. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, essentially, what we had was the gold. Uh, there was gold backing of currency, uh, the promissory notes as well. Government started creating paper money, which was a claim on. Um, the gold again, um, and essentially 1971, Richard Nixon, the U.S. president, cut the link. So he said, sorry, too bad. We're not going to convert the uh, currency to gold. So the U.S. dollar was backed by gold, uh, and most other currencies were converted into the U.S. dollar. So everything around the world right now is bought in the U.S. dollar, Yeah. Um, whether it's wheat or oil or whatever other commodity it is. And it used to be backed by gold. So if I was a creditor nation, I could uh, tell America, hey, you owe me so much. Can I have my gold now? In 1971, Richard Nixon said, sorry, mate, uh, temporary uh, disconnection between the two, and they never installed it. So what we have in today's Western world, I wouldn't say Western world, globally, 
is we all have fiat currencies. What fiat currency means or fiat money is because the government said so. That's it. Okay. Yeah. That's all. It's just a piece of paper. Yeah. So I can create $1,000 tomorrow if I want. Would you accept it? You wouldn't. Uh, well, no. Well, yeah, because I'd worry about it. Um, it's funny you say that because a friend of mine gave me a, a – he sort of flashed it out. It looked like a $50 note. And I said, hey, why are you carrying cash? And then he showed it to me. It was just a clever marketing trick on the other side. It was just uh, uh, details about some event that they're going to, to have. But the, the point was you leave it, you leave it, you know, money side up and people are instantly attracted to it. And I was. Yeah. yeah. That's, and, how, and that, that's how much credibility that has. Exactly. So what you got to understand is it's just a piece of paper. It is absolutely nothing else but a piece of paper. Coming back to the legal tender law. So I, I think I mentioned this on the webinar we did with VFF as well. So the other thing we have to do is the note has to be familiar. So that is why it has to be standard. So if you see a $5 note, it has a certain color and it has a big five written on it. And a $50 note is a certain color. So the money has to be standard. The fiat currency has to be standard in a country. And I would ask anyone to do this, but pull out any note that you have in your pocket I'm looking at a $5 note right now in front of me. And on that note, it says, this note is legal tender for $5. So the paper is not $5. It is just a note, which is legal tender for $5. And essentially, it's a confidence game. Everyone in New Zealand agrees that this piece of paper has five written on it, which is the unit of account. So if I have to buy something for $5, all I have to do is hand over this note. You understand? Yeah. We just—it's it, just a unit of account, and we all agree. Value. The and we all agree. We all, and that's Absolutely. the that's the thing that holds it all together. We all agree that it has that value. It's legitimate, and they put things into the note that make it hard to reproduce in any other way to maintain its exclusivity. And while everyone's happy with that, everyone's happy. Well, for now, we know in history, <laughs> and this has happened in the past as well in Weimar Germany, where they create too much of it. And that's when you have hyperinflation. So again, we'll we'll go into those things in the future yeah, of uh, course. Uh, conversations. But I want to come back to the legal tender one um, there for you, Paul, because the most important thing is people have asked me, what is legal tender? Essentially, the I, I'm just giving a New Zealand example because we're in New Zealand. So on a New Zealand note, it says this note is legal tender for $5. What it essentially means is the government says you have to pay taxes or debt in this country with this currency only. So this is legal tender. Now, through the COVID and the last couple of years, I think most of our listeners, hopefully, and some other people have woken up to the fact and a difference between lawful and legal. So if you and I want to exchange something, um, it's lawful as long as we both parties agree on that we're both getting value. As I said, you might give me a sheep and I might give you, I don't know, 100 eggs. Yeah. But we agree, so it's lawful. The legal tender is where they say, if you do not pay your taxes in this cur currency, you go to jail. You could go to jail. Right. Or you can sometimes not even fly out of the country if you haven't paid your taxes. Most people know that. So essentially what it is, is a government just says, you, when you're living in New Zealand, you have to only own this currency. Of course, you can trade in other currencies, but all your debt is to be paid back in this currency. So they create an artificial demand for a piece of paper that wasn't there prior to that. Does that make any sense? 
Yep, it does. It's just counterfeit paper and it's monopoly money, but the government says you can pay taxes in New Zealand dollars. Now I have to go to a job to earn New Zealand dollars to pay taxes in New Zealand dollars or pay property taxes in New Zealand dollars. That's how the demand is created for what? And now you're in. You, you've now you're your, in. You're, you're a participant whether you like it or not. Exactly. So you create the tax liability first because I cannot pay my New Zealand tax liability with US dollars or with a sheep farmer could not just say, yes, 20 sheep worth this much amount. No, you have to pay New Zealand dollars. And it's coercive. So you could go to jail for that. Uh, if you haven't paid your property taxes, they could take your property off you. So this is how globally, and, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just explaining the system. This is how everyone's trapped into the system because they said it's legal tender. So it's illegal for you to do anything else. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, so I, I didn't realize you couldn't pay in or not pay in other currencies. You know, you t you just can't, right? You can't rock up with a. Or, no, no, it has to be. Yeah, okay. So yeah, you'd have to convert it back to New Zealand dollars and do that. That's behind the scenes. But yeah. as I said, if I have, I, I can't pay in any other kind. I have to pay in New Zealand dollars, and that is why it's legal tender, and. Yeah. Okay. All right. So everybody is in whether they like it or not. And I can see now, as you're talking, why cryptocurrency is such a threat or alternative currencies is such a threat. Maybe not a, a chat for today, but I can see how that then becomes a problem uh, because that pulls you away from the system. Absolutely. And, and it just means me and you can trade in whatever we, as I just said, it would be lawful for us to trade in, but it wouldn't be legal. And this is what I want people to understand the difference between the two. What is considered legal and illegal yeah. and what is lawful, which is the what you got to understand is fiat currency and legal tender were essentially created uh, to create government monopoly on money. So that's, a, that's part of the power structure of a government. That is it. That is it. it, it a government is just a big family. So you go out, you... You earn income, you pay your taxes, and then you consume. What is a government source of income? A government source of income is taxing its citizens, whether it's through GST or whether it's through land taxes or whether it's your personal taxes on labor. Right. That is a government's income. So government then gets to go and borrow and say, look, I am the New Zealand government. I last year got so much in taxes. I would like to borrow so much. Just like you would go to a bank and say, last year my income was, let's say, $100,000. Would you give me a loan for so much to buy a house? That's essentially what a government is, just a bigger family. Yeah. And its only income is its citizens. It keeps taxing its citizens. When you talked about Nixon in 71 and coming off the gold standard, and you were you know, talking earlier um, before that about how much banks hold as a proportion to how much they owe at any one time, uh, would... What, was it dollar for dollar backed by gold, the U.S. currency, or was it also the same situation? There was a certain percentage of the currency out there in physical gold, but, you know, not the total amount available. Where was it? In Fort Knox or something. How, how did it work back then? Yeah, um, there was always fractional reserve banking, as I explained with the, the goldsmith analogy. Yeah. So the banks were holding on to it. So the fractional the Federal Reserve Bank was set up in 1914. 
There's a book out there, The Creature from Jekyll Island, if people want to understand how the Federal Reserve was created. That's how central banking was created. And um, the banks were always allowed to lend more than it was, but the US dollar converted to about, I think it was 34 US dollars, uh, sorry, $20.67 was one ounce of gold. So I could walk into a bank and ask for my ounce of gold, let's just say 20. So I could take a $20 note and say, I want my ounce of gold back. Remember the convertibility I talked about? Yeah. So you could still do it back then. You're talking about 1971, but what you got to understand is between that, after World War uh, I, uh, FDR, Roosevelt, the president, confiscated gold from private citizens also. This was an America-only phenomenon where the president actually confiscated gold from the private citizens and literally a month later revalued it to $35 an ounce. I think we're now going into the nitty gritty of it, but essentially yeah. what you've got to understand is the government has the capability of taking away the real money from you. And that is something which, again, I would like to talk to people about, which is coming down the track because uh, some governments around the world are already starting to cancel their currencies. There's some central bank digital currency experiments going on in certain parts of the world and stuff like that. It is eventually coming to New Zealand and Australian shores. Uh, Reserve Bank of New Zealand clearly states they're also are trialing a CBDC. Um, so it's all in the works. So you've got to understand how to protect yourself and your family. But coming back to your question, the fractional reserve banking has always been there. The banks only have to hold on to $1 for an extra $9 that they can lend into the economy. Yeah, because I've heard um, Reserve Bank announcements, you know, where they've required banks to hold a, a little bit more. I guess that that's the sort of dynamic approach to dealing with however uh, much they're exposed. Is that what that's about? Well, that's it, yeah. So the, the tier one ratios, um, well, instead of 10%, they make it 12%. That is not going to help in case of a bank run, as we saw in the case of SVB, which was the Silicon Valley bank that collapsed. So the the way that collapse came about was one tweet by a millionaire in uh, America, and everyone started panicking and started withdrawing their money. Now, back in the days, we used to call them bank runs because you used to have to literally walk into a bank and say, I want my money back. And you had to withdraw that. In today's technological world, I can literally log into my phone on the app and transfer the money to another bank. Yeah. And most, I think Reserve Bank also, uh, about a week or two weeks back, now it's instant settlements as well. So if you did it on a Friday, it wouldn't go there till Monday, but now it's instant settlement. So bank runs can literally happen in a matter of hours rather than days. And also back in the days, we used to have newspapers or word of mouth in today's algorithm-driven world, bank runs are going to be faster. You might go to sleep one night, and in the morning, a bank could have collapsed. Wow. Okay. That's a, Just that's... when you think about technology and all of that, right? I, I've just yeah. given two examples there how quickly a bank run can happen in today's world. So that could, I don't want to alarm anyone, but that could easily happen here, couldn't it? Oh, of course it can. Of course it can. And... Something else I'd like to highlight, which I did in the webinar as well. Uh, after the global financial crisis, we had something called um, bailouts. So the governments had bailed out most banks around the world. Um, and in 2013, in the G20 summit, which was held in Brisbane, and I provided links for all of this to people in my PDF documents who were paying attention, 
they had signed into law the G20 countries to have a bail-in. What that means essentially is as a depositor, you will lose your funds. If let's say a bank collapses in New Zealand or Australia, they can take a part of your deposits to refinance the bank in a way, to recapitalize the bank. And this is openly there. Anyone can Google OBR, Open Bank Resolution, on the Reserve Bank of New Zealand's website, and they tell you, we will shut the bank for a day or two. We might just hold some of your deposits on the side while we recapitalize the bank. Now, this is one part. The second part is what we saw in America. Most G20 countries have a government guarantee on their bank deposits. So Australia has 250000 per bank per financial institution. America has that. Canada has that. New Zealand has none. So I thought there was a one... Minister- I was under the impression there was a $100,000 sort of guarantee. There's none right now. They talked about it during the global financial crisis. They had to because all other countries did it. So Uh, did New Zealand. Then it was taken off. A couple of years back, Grant Robertson and uh, the finance minister and everyone's been talking about getting something in place. The initial public consultation was $30,000. Then they said fifty. dollars Then they said hundred. dollars That's what we've agreed upon. But it is not signed into law. So they say, oh, it'll be about 2024, mid-2024, end 2024, and we will have this in place and we'll get banks to pay a certain premium to cover the cost of this. But as of right now, New Zealand has no government guarantee and it's the only country in the OECD and the G20 which does not have a government guarantee on their bank deposits. I'm not saying people should go out and run no, their no, banks let's not and take their money the off, <laughs> but it's just about knowing and asking the questions. And and again, I have clients who we help with asset allocation, all of that. But if you just have a million dollars in one bank, maybe go open three or four different bank accounts and diversify your risk yeah. if you want to hold it all in bank deposits, that is. yeah. Um, but it is just keeping yourself safe. So if I was in Australia and I've got a 250K government guarantee per bank, and if I had a million dollars, I I would probably spread it over four banks, 250K. So at least I know the government will guarantee all 250 from all the four banks. So it's just about knowing all these things and they're not yes. going to scream out and tell you about all of this. So if there was a bail-in and your funds got caught up in the bail-in, does that mean you still owed that money or does that money just disappear? It just doesn't exist anymore for you as far as you're concerned. The way it sits right now is the conversation flows. And we've seen, again, this is all linked. So they do different things in different parts of the world and they try what works. So they don't alarm one country about everything. So um, the, the, the legislation of the paperwork, the conversation they're having right now is they'll give you shares. So they'll give you equity. So your money, let's say if you had 100,000, they might say, oh, you, there's Paul, you can have 40. We're just going to clamp down on the 60. You can't use this because of this OBR thing. But then if the bank collapses and the need to take that 60 off you, they will just give you equity. So they might give you shares of the broke bank, but you're like, I don't want the shares because the bank is broke. Yeah, not they worth don't anything. Care. They're not worth anything, but they have to recapitalize it, right? So how do they recapitalize it? With your stolen deposits or with your confiscated deposits, they'll recapitalize the bank. So technically this time the government didn't bail it out. It was bailed in by the depositors. And again, I think I've tried to explain this to most people in the past as well. We were talking about banking. And again, people don't understand. Once you place your money in the bank, it ain't yours. 
your friend is carrying cash, let's say, or I carry some cash in my pocket, $1,000 in my pocket is my $1,000. I yeah. can use it when I want it. But if I have $1,000 in the bank and the bank collapses, it's gone. It's not my money because depositors, when you sign, again, you know how I said when you take a loan, you're paying interest as a cost of capital for them lending it to you. The same thing with depositors. So when I deposit money into a bank, a bank gives me interest. Obviously, it's very low compared to what a loan interest is. Mm. But they give you some interest on your term deposit or on your savings account. That means you have now lent the money to the bank. It ain't your money anymore. Oh, okay. Same thing. Yeah, same thing. You, de you deposit the money in the bank. That is not your money anymore. Yeah. It belongs to the bank to do what they want with it as they see fit. Of course, you want to withdraw it and they let you use it. But this is, again, where it comes into that 10%. If everyone went and withdrew their money tomorrow, the banking system would collapse. Okay, the money so, doesn't exist. Okay, I'm thinking now a um, couple of questions, and uh, we're going to be mindful of time. We've got about another 10 minutes in our chat. So I'm aware that the use of cash is now being restricted. It's being tightened. I mean, there's a threshold to what you can – I think it's $10,000 in New Zealand – uh, you can buy something for up to that value in actual cash, but after that, you can't. I think in other countries, it's down as low as $1,000, and that's restricting that point you just made before of it being your money in your pocket when you can use it any time. Is, is that why cash is being restricted? Because it's sold to us, you know, that criminal people are – you know, avoiding the tax system and 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 you know trading drugs and cash, etc. But um, is that is that the real reason? Well, anyone with half a brain can try and figure that out, right? They even told us cash is bad because there might be the COVID virus on it and all that kind of stuff. That's so, right. Yes, the bigger agenda is to get rid of cash because if you have cash, you're independent of the banking system. Now, if you place what I told you, the 2026, where we're going into with all of this, they want all of us in a banking system. Now, if everyone, if no one has cash anymore, and if everyone is in the banking system, let's say the government tomorrow comes out and says, okay, all cash is banned. You have a couple of months deposited into the banking system. And I've explained this to people. This happened really in India in 2016, where the prime minister came on the television at night and literally that night announced that he was cancelling two bits of paper currencies, the bigger denominations. And his justification was, oh, there's too much black money in the market and all of that. So they will try and get people back into the banking system. Once everyone is in the banking system, they can do one of two things. Firstly, they can do what Europe did in 2014 onwards, was have negative interest rates. So in Europe and Japan, they had negative interest rates. So let's say, for example, you're a millionaire, uh, Paul, just giving you an example. You might be, I don't know. No. But you might have a million dollars in a bank account in uh, New Zealand. You were earning 3 or 4% interest on a million dollars. If you're in Europe and you had a million dollars, there were negative interest rates. So you were losing money just to put it in a bank or leave it in a bank. So that money was then flowing to the likes of America and Australia and New Zealand, which obviously, again, without going into the weeds of it, was driving the Australian and the New Zealand dollar higher. So in the future, what they intend to do is one of two things. Once everyone's money is in the banking system, you can induce negative interest rates. And what are you going to do? You can't get out of it because all money is digital. So there is no more paper money. 
you can't run away from, they could put a 10% negative interest rate and there's nothing you can do. What people have said, why would they do that? There's a couple of reasons. One is to get inflation, to get growth in the economy, because you might say, I would rather go and spend this money and buy something for myself than lose 10% of it just by sitting in the bank. Right. Okay. That is so, one reason. So they want you to go out and spend more and more because they collect more taxes on it as well. So they don't want anything stored necessarily. They want it. Yes. They want yeah. everyone in more debt. So the more you go out and spend. So that's, that's one of the negative. In, th- th- there's so many things to it. The second thing is once you're in the banking system, they can take taxes on the spot. So we know the Chinese system at the moment, uh, they've trialed CBDC and you could be jaywalking or you just cross the street by mistake because you were on the phone. There's an instant fine uh, and you yeah. don't have a chance to argue it because it's just directly gone out of your bank account. And if this is linked with your social credit score, what are you going to do? You're going to behave in a particular way if you don't way, want to lose. Exactly. And, and you can manipulate everybody through the those. government can become so authoritative because they can tell you exactly when to stand and when to sit and you will have no choice because there is no more cash you are in their system now it's not just they can tax you on the spot as well so instead of them waiting for the whole year or for the month taxes are instantaneous um, some of this happens in some parts of the world also in india there's certain taxes that are at source um, the other thing is with the ESG agenda, they might say, hey, Paul, you've traveled too much this year. We can just switch off your central bank digital currency. So you can't book a flight. You can't travel anywhere. You're stuck at home because you've used your carbon credits for the month. Uh, you've had too much stake this month. Your ESG score is too high. Sorry. And, and, I'm, and some people might think this is a bit too far-fetched, but there are banks in Netherlands which on your bank statement actually print out your carbon score and MasterCard has actually launched a credit card also. Obviously, they're part of the World Economic Forum, um, which actually counts your carbon credits. And there's more to the ESG. There's this thing called the CEI. Um, maybe at some stage, we'll go into that. Just a teaser for some people. They must be thinking, why are all these organizations going woke? So we see in America where there's some certain organizations doing certain things and they're losing customers. And you would think, why would they be doing that? Because there's something called the CEI. Uh, again, which is an ESG kind of thing, which is done behind the scenes to make sure these big organizations play in line oh, I see. towards the yep. agenda 2030. So everyone talks about the ESG. No one really knows about the CEI thing. And that's to lock the the non-individuals into this process, let's say, the organizations and the institutions. The organizations, yes. You get a score, uh, ESG score organizations get, um, the CI score also organizations get on how woke you are, how many uh, different, uh, how many of your staff are men to women, or how many of them, sorry, but this is the world is transgender, LGBTQI, whatever, how diverse you are, how woke you are. So you get a woke score. Yeah, And the funny thing is, you might think someone like Bud Light in America right now, who's trying to go there or target, I don't know if your audience might know what has been going on there, are being banned by their customers. And you think, why would an organization do that? Because the likes of your Black Rocks and the Vanguards are the ones who give these organizations funding. And if your yeah. CEI score is low, you don't get the funding. So again, that's too much of a deep dive. I know that's, that, that's for, for, for another um, chat, for sure. Um, why was our Prime Minister walking out the front door of BlackRock then? 
Yeah. It's funny, right? And this is it. People with a little bit of common sense, they say common sense is not so common, but I can tell you people with a little bit of common sense can connect the dots. And so there's something not right here. Um, again, the media is covering up so much of it that most people don't have the time or the energy to research this. And this is where, again, BFF and this radio station is good because you can tune in in about half an hour yeah. and someone like me sharing something about money or somebody else sharing about something else and you're caught up because let's be honest traditional media is dying and this is. is going to be the future yeah i agree but um they seem to be quite uh cooperative in in the maneuverings let's say do you think they they're aware <laughs> or are they, well, just, they yeah, just doing yeah, what they have to, to try well and- they have to they have to paul you don't bite the hand that feeds you, right? Yeah. As I just said. So, of course, if the government's funding these kind of things, and that's why you'll see more and more of government funding these things, governments will try and crowd out the private market. But there comes a point where I think it's gone from about 5% of the population waking up to about 15%. It gets yeah. about 20 25%, and there's that mass-critical uh, tipping yeah. point. Yeah, And I think that everyone wakes up. And this is what I'm saying. I think most people are waking up with inflation right now because they're going, why is everything so expensive? Why can I suddenly not pay for this? Why is my salary not increasing in line with how expensive everything is getting? And hopefully on the next one, we can explain what inflation is. And it is in the government's best interest to actually increase inflation and how they actually contribute to the inflation. And people will go, wow. I'm getting, I I do not get it, but I'm getting screwed every single day and I'm being lied to on my face. Wow. Okay. This has been uh, really interesting. We've we've got to have, we've got to talk again. So thank you, Faz. And that was really interesting. No, thank you. Thank you to the listeners and thank you to yourself and um, um, hope, hope to do this again. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.